Hi, my name is Danielle and you're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada. On this podcast, we discuss subjects that might be creepy to some and sometimes even frightening. Some of our episodes will deal with serious subject matter, while others will be more lighthearted. Please keep in mind that I am not an expert on any of the topics I cover, just an interested party, and as always, listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, I'm Danielle. I'm Paul-Emile. And you're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about residential schools in Canada. I had the opportunity this week to speak with Susan Levi-Peters about residential schools as well as many other things. So you'll notice that you have two episodes that dropped this week. This first part that you're listening to, we're going to be discussing the history of residential schools. And part two will be the conversation that I had with Susan. Susan is an author and an activist. She was the first female chief at the Elsie Booktook Band Council, and she worked in politics for several years. I really enjoyed my conversation with her, and I learned a lot, so I hope you do too. The residential school history started before Canada was officially founded. For simplicity purposes, I'll just refer to it as Canada even prior to 1867, before Canada was officially Canada. So the first residential schools, starting around the 1830s, they were formed by both the government and the church. And the idea was to assimilate and convert Indigenous children and youth into society. And this is according to the Canadian Encyclopedia.ca. So the first schools opened around 1831. Do you know what, what year the last one closed its doors? I believe it was in the early 90s. 1996. Oh. Yeah, you weren't too far off. That's not that long ago. It's not. Nope. About 150,000 children attended residential schools during those years, which works out to about 30% of Indigenous children. That's a huge part of their community, 30%. It's a very big part, and if you listen to the interview with Susan, and I know you haven't heard it yet, but she talks a lot about and something I was not aware of, but they had the day schools on the, reser- on the reservations as well. And so if you had a day school in your community, you wouldn't be going to residential school. So we're looking at 30% as the number that attended residential schools, but all the rest of the children went to the day schools and apparently the treatment they received wasn't much better there. So these day schools were operated by the government also? Yes. I was not aware of that. So the government got involved in the 70s, and basically the residential schools became what they're known as now, but there were treaties that were signed, and basically the government had a responsibility to provide Indigenous youth with an education as society was changing. Most of the residential schools were in Western Canada, But there were some in Ontario and Quebec, and there was one in Nova Scotia. So New Brunswick and PI did not have any. It's um, interesting because usually when you hear about the residential schools, the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, this happened in in the, uh, the United States. 
Yeah. I think it's part, it's part of uh, a hidden history of Canada that we're not taught. And for the few of us that realized that it was going on in Canada, we assumed it was out west. Yeah. And then, you know, our neighbors in Quebec and Nova Scotia, it was going on right there. So I think there's a big, uh, that history has been hidden from us. There were also schools in Newfoundland and Labrador, but keep in mind that they weren't part of Canada until much later. So those aren't really talked about as much. I believe Newfoundland and Labrador joined Canada in 1949. Yeah, I, I had to look it up today, but yes, it was 1949. The children often had to be brought to the schools by force. They were taken from their homes and communities to attend these schools, and some of them didn't see their families for years on end. So I think we've all seen the paintings, or a lot of us probably have, where you see RCMP on a reserve picking up children, and they're basically bringing them by force to residential schools, which in an, like without anything else being involved, must have been extremely traumatic. We're just talking about little kids being picked up by force. Right, and being torn away from the only life that they had known. Exactly. And um, by these guys wearing red jackets who were the law, or that was unknown to them, mm-hmm. just walking in. It, really, it's almost... Uh, you can almost compare it to a war when another country takes over a country and basically starts taking people away, making them disappear. Yeah, and Susan actually in the interview, I'm not going to give everything away, I promise, but um, in the interview she talked about how kids from residential schools in the later years would come back Um, to their communities for the summer and all the other kids that weren't going to the schools were jealous because they'd show up in fancy clothes and they were and they were being allegedly fed properly whereas on the reserves they were very poor so it was a very poor lifestyle so a lot of the kids were excited to go to the residential schools until they got there right and that kind of indicates that some of the government's propaganda was uh, working Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, we we don't know what the kids were told before returning home, and what they felt safe in saying. Yeah. The other thing that just kind of came to mind right now too is, it could very well have been for those children that this is just how it was. So if you don't really know that it should be different, you don't know you have something to talk about. Right. Right. You, you don't realize that you're being wronged or treat, mistreated. Mm-hmm. So these kids were not allowed to speak their language once they got to school. And many of the children didn't speak English, so they would arrive to school and it's already a shell shock for them. But then on top of that, they're not allowed to speak the only language that they know. Their hair was cut and they were given new clothes and new names. They weren't able to practice any of their traditions. They purposefully separated siblings and wouldn't allow them to talk to one another. So essentially their whole culture and their whole identity was taken away from them all at once. Until the late 1950s, the children would have a half day in the classroom and then they would learn skills that were supposed to help them 
earn a living as adults, so essentially trades. But the reality of it is that the work they were doing was to keep the schools running and bring money in. So there's not much difference between what was going on there in slavery. Aside from the part that they had a half day in the classroom, that whole other half part, yeah. They were working for nothing. Right, but the, even the half day in the classroom was not... The, the, what they were learning was not part of their culture. They were trying to erase the culture. That's the thing, too. Like, You can learn new skills without having to erase everything that you are. Right. But if I understand correctly, that was not the goal of the residential school. That was not the goal. So I think I think when the First Nations leaders agreed to have schooling run through the government, their idea was that their idea wasn't to, that the identity of these children would be stripped away, is that they would still have their identity, but then they would also develop new skills, which is not at all what happened here. After the 1950s, the government started investing more money into the schools. So at that point, they were moved to a full day of schooling. The kids were away from their families for very long periods of time. I think I read somewhere about some children that didn't see their families for seven years. So a young child would leave home six or seven years old and not see his family again until he was a teenager. Mm-hmm. That's terrible it really wasn't the family's decision. Like they would actually go to the schools to try and see their children and it was refused. They weren't allowed to see them. It was only after the 1960s that they would actually let the students go home for the holidays. Both the educational and vocational training that the children received in these schools was considered very poor. There was no required teacher qualifications. So the teachers that were there weren't qualified in any way to be there or didn't have to be. And the and the curriculum that they were teaching was essentially an elementary school curriculum. And that was to all kids regardless of their age. So even if you'd been there for seven years, you were still only getting a basic elementary school education. When the children left the school, they often didn't feel like they belonged in their communities because they'd been away for so long. And again, they'd been stripped from their identity and all their traditions and their beliefs, but they weren't prepared to live outside of their communities either. So it must have felt for them that no matter where they went, they were like strangers in a strange land. I think one of the things that's really important in their communities is the teachings from their elders. And just that simple fact of a young child being taken away from his community and uh, under the pretense of teaching them or giving them an education um, and then coming back and seeing what the other children that hadn't been out of the community had learned from the elders must have been really foreign to them. Mm-hmm. And I think all the stuff that you kind of absorb by living in a family unit, whatever that looks like for your family, they didn't have that so from a very young age they didn't see what parenting skills look like what you know what support looked like they were just left on their own so they miss this whole skill set that you do learn from your family even if it's not actively being taught to you you just learn it by seeing it every day 
it's repetitive. It's the it's what the family does mm -hmm. on a daily basis, and um, yeah, it it had to be really confusing for the those uh, those kids. There was a serious lack of oversight in the schools as well. Corporal punishment was used regularly. And we're not just talking about a quick rap on the knuckles. Some children would be strapped, whipped, and beaten. Many children in the schools were sexually abused as well. The children that reported this were often not believed, and on the rare occasion where the abuse was reported and the complaint was listened to, the worst that would happen was that the perpetrator would be fired, and often even this didn't happen. So the child would continue to see their abusers every day with no means of escaping. According to the records, 3,200 children died in residential schools. But because record keeping was extremely poor, it's actually estimated that the number's probably more than 6,000. And this would be according to Justice Marie Sinclair, who is the chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So there were various reasons for the children dying. Um, malnutrition and poor living conditions would leave the kids very vulnerable to TB and influenza. So a lot of kids got sick and were never able to return home. They passed while they were in school. Not only that, but experimentation was actually conducted on children's nutrition while they were in the schools, and obviously no one consented to that, not the parents and not the child. They would restrict nutrition, so they would give one child milk and the next child wouldn't get any, and they would do this for a while to see what happened and what would happen if they would reintroduce the milk, and they did that uh, with various vitamins as well. The, that goes way beyond trying to give a child an education. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, we hear about all these like LSD experiments that were made and experimentation on adults, which all of it is terrible, especially if you did not consent to this. But these children had zero say on any of it. I also think it's uh, a bit of a sense of entitlement from the Europeans thinking that it was okay to mistreat this, the, the children of those communities like that. Absolutely. So where are you in your mind to think that it's okay to do that? In 1969, the church's involvement in the residential schools ended. The government started phasing out schools, and by 1986, most of the schools were closed. So the phasing out wasn't quick. To take so long to phase out that whole program uh, kind of indicates that they were not really interested in phasing it out. They weren't working very hard on it. They drug it out as long as they were able to. Yeah. In the 1990s, the survivors started asking that the government publicly acknowledge what happened in residential schools and asked for reparations. So that started in the 90s. In 2005, the government provided a compensation package for survivors and it took until 2008 when Stephen Harper formally apologized. However, none of this compensation or the apology applied to Newfoundland and Labrador because the government said they were not part of Canada when the residential schools were established, therefore the government had nothing to do with it. 
which I feel like is really splitting hairs on the matter. Yeah, I, yeah, it is. In 2016, they finally received compensation. Um, and in 2017, Prime Minister Trudeau did uh, give an apology as well. Many children lost their lives to malnutrition and disease, but many children lost their lives while trying to run away from the residential schools and get back to their communities and their families. So we're going to talk about one of those children, though there are many. This is probably one of the better known ones because it was around the time that the schools started to phase out. Chani Wenjak was 12 years old when he ran away from his residential school. So his school was close to Kenora, Ontario, but that was about 600 kilometers away from his family's community. In October 1966, Chani and two of his friends ran away from the playground. They were only dressed in light cotton clothing when they left. This was the first time that Chani had run away from school. Some children were uh, doing this repeatedly, but it was the first time for him. And he told his friends that he wanted to see his father. On the day that they ran away, nine other children ran away from the school as well. So the trio headed out to find one of the boy's uncles. Chenny and his friends walked almost eight hours to make it to the uncle's cabin. So these are 12-year-old kids are walking eight hours. They walked eight hours to get to the uncle's cabin. So Chenny stayed with them for a little while and then left on his own to go find his father. Remember, this is October. He had a jar with a few matches in it and the, clo the clothing on his back. So his plan was to follow the train tracks and ask rail workers for food. He made it 36 hours before succumbing to the elements. It rained, it snowed, and the wind howled while he was trying to make his way home. He was not dressed for the weather at all. He only had his light cotton clothing, so he wasn't prepared for what he was facing. He died of exposure and hunger. His body was found by the tracks, covered in bruises from repeated falls. An inquest was held following his death, and an investigation into residential schools was called for. So his story, Chani's story, is one of many, many tragic stories associated with residential schools. It's a really dark part of our history, but we can't ignore it and we can't forget about it. We need to acknowledge the suffering that happened, and we need to listen and acknowledge what the survivors went through. Part two of this episode will be the conversation I had with Susan. So for a moment of kindness, I just want to thank her for having the kindness to talk to us and to share her story. The only comment that I want to make on this is how sad it is that in 2020, the whole story is still being hidden from the average Canadian. And unless you either know somebody or go searching for that history, we don't know about it. I could probably tell you more about the Egyptians based on what they taught me in school than I can tell you about what was done to the First Nations children and the First Nation communities in general. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a big lack in our education system. Yeah, there there's a lot of issues there still that need to be addressed. And I think we, as Canadians, we all need to be interested. We all need 
to read up on them and inform ourselves and get involved because it's our responsibility. Yeah, I think we need to stand up as a country and, you know, make our voices loud. You know, in the early 70s, uh, I grew up right across the river from the First Nations community. And I remember at 10 p.m., the fire horn going off in on the fire station. And it was uh, an alarm telling everybody that was from the First Nations community that they had to get out of town and head back to their reservations. So it was their curfew alarm? Yes, it was their curfew alarm. And, and you know, 1975, 6, that's not... <laughs> That's not that long ago. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can find us on Instagram or find our Facebook group, Crime and Mystery Canada, or you can reach out at crimeandmysterycanada at gmail.com. I hope everyone gets the chance to listen to part two of this episode, and I hope everyone stays safe out there. Have a good night. <laughs>